Hi, I'm Ron Hogan, and you're listening to Life Stories, a podcast where I interview memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Ashok Rajamani. His book is called The Day My Brain Exploded. It's published by Algonquin Books, and it delivers exactly what it says on the tin. So let's set the scene, Ashok. Give us the setup for The Day That Your Brain Exploded. It's rather risque, but basically I was at my brother's wedding in D.C. in the year 2000, and it was in a hotel. It was in a ballroom, the wedding. Ten minutes before the ceremony, I was in my hotel room, and I decided to masturbate. And when I orgasmed, I fell on my bed, and I felt something wrong with my head. It didn't feel like a normal orgasm. It felt literally like my brain was exploding. Inside my head, I felt like Hiroshima. There was an atomic bomb. Luckily, I contacted the operator. My sister-in-law was in her wedding dress, and my brother was in his tux, and they took me to the hospital next door. And it turned out they detected a thing called an AVM, which is an arteriovenous malformation, a congenital birth defect. And what happened was that orgasm hit the birth defect, and that birth defect exploded. About 1% of the population is born with an AVM, and they usually die with a brain explosion. But that was my day to have it, and I lived. To clarify a little bit about what an AVM is, it's essentially, it, it forms in the womb, and it's essentially a blood clot. Well, it's a sort of tangle of arteries and veins inside the brain. So if you think of the veins and arteries being like rivers in the brain, this is a tangle of the rivers, which cause problems because the blood can't flow properly. As your, your doctor described it right after the incident, trigger moments like orgasms or other peak or, or high stress experiences send that it's, it's that flow of blood rushing through that area that just sort of bursts well it's, it's predominantly a urogenital situation that causes it so it's usually during an orgasm issue sex going to the bathroom a woman giving birth these moments cause your brain to erupt when it happened the immediate impact was that it upended your life right off the bat for the I mean, how long were you hospitalized for? Well, I was hospitalized for about three months. It was a, a shocking experience because I had just gone there only for a wedding. I had no idea that was going to happen. So for three months, it was pretty much a touch-and-go situation. Sometimes I was close to death. Sometimes I had two bouts of meningitis. Um, I had these things called ventriculostomies, which are tubes drilled into my skull in order to vent out the blood. After three months of my blood going through my body, it had to clot. Once it clotted, they were able to drill open my skull and scoop out part of my brain, the remnants of the AVM, and then clamp my skull back together again with titanium metal. So basically three quarters of my skull is metal. And which portion of the brain did it immediately affect? Well, it was the right temporal occipital lobe. Now, occipital is obviously your vision lobe. Now, because it's on my right side, which exploded, I lost my left vision. Now I am permanently blind in half of both my eyes. That's an ailment called hemianopsia. It's a very difficult condition because I don't see a line of demarcation. I don't, it looks like I'm seeing the world when I'm only seeing half the world. Right. You know, when you say, you know, I'm half blind in each eye, I think like one of the first images that pops to mind is like people think that it's like, you know, you see everything, but then there's like like this black bar mm -hmm. over the left side. Of, and it's not really like that. It's basically that you have half that field of vision and it's sort of like stretched out to cover. Well, it's not it, even stretched it, out. It it's, like, it's exactly mm -hmm. what it is. But mm -hmm. it's it's very, that's interesting that you said it because it's an 
intellectually, I've known that I lost it, but it's very difficult for me to live it because I don't see that line. I've gone into women's restrooms, public restrooms, quite often because I can only see the M-E-N and I can't see the W-O. When I enter, I see a bunch of stalls, no urinals, and I, <laughs> I hear screams from the women and I realize that's incorrect and I get out. I have been hit by a few cars on the street because I wasn't paying attention. The doctors told me that I have to make my head into an oscillating fan so I'm able to access my entire field of vision. But sometimes I forget to do it. A lot of times I forget to do it. Another consequence of the explosion and and the sub subsequent uh, recovery was, uh, I was fascinated by this, was the amnesia effect. And it wasn't necessary. I mean, there were parts of it that were a factual amnesia in terms of like filling in the gaps there. But even when the gaps were filled in, I was struck by the concept of the emotional amnesia in that you know what happened to you, but you don't really have a feeling about it. No. Yeah, this is a very horrific condition because I think one thing is all humans have is we have emotional memories. A woman can know when she gave birth to a child, but she can also access those feelings of giving birth to that child. I no longer can do that. I can I can look, for instance, I went to my old college campus. I took a tour to see where I went to college. And I saw it, and I felt nothing. I didn't feel the thrill or the excitement of being in the campus. I ran into uh, long-term family members. I felt nothing. I know that they're my uncle, but I felt nothing. And it's a very hard condition to deal with, but it's getting better. I am getting able, I'm able to emotionally retain memories. Of the, the new experiences. Of new experiences, <laughs> correct. Right. So I'll remember today. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, this is actually... I'm emotionally excited about today. I'll remember it. This, this, although this actually does come up in that you were having trouble sort of like remembering with the short-term memory. There's you know, a great passage where you're describing having a fight with your brother in the morning, making up with him in the, in the afternoon, mm. and then waking up the next morning and forgetting the making up part so that you're still pissed that off. That still happens. <laughs> yes, correct. I'm, I wouldn't be pissed off. I adore you. I uh, No, I, I don't. Um, that's still a very difficult situation. There's still a very much a Groundhog Day quality to it where I can have closure to a fight, to an argument, and then the next morning I'll forget about the closure. I'll remember about the fight. But I won't have the closure inside, and I'll have that anger will be fresh once again. There was another sort of, it's not exactly an emotional amnesia, but I was struck by it. This sort of almost having to refigure out your sexual orientation in that, you know, you, and it was a long time after you got home from the surgery and were recuperating before you even felt ready to even attack. I couldn't <laughs> masturbate for quite a bit after that, as you would expect. Mm -hmm. Yes, correct. And, and then when you were finally ready to, mm -hmm. it was like, well, what do I like? Yeah, that is a question. Um, before this, I definitely categorized myself as queer. I like that label because it pretty much indicates anything outside of a straight heterosexual life or desire and interest. So when I was, after my hemorrhage, I didn't quite know what was going on. So I basically looked through Men's Fitness and Victoria's Secret and I saw what would arouse me and luckily um that hadn't changed so both of them did so i was sexuality remained the same one of the things that changed and it seemed like this was maybe in the tentative processes of changing even before the brain explosion but you write about i mean there was a point at which fresh out of college you were a functioning alcoholic 
fast on his way to becoming a non-functioning alcoholic. And then I'm trying to remember if it was the after the explosion or even before the explosion that you really sort of stopped drinking. It was pretty much, I mean, it was after the explosion because immediately leading up to it, I was drinking heavily. And even after the explosion, I was really worried that my drinking would happen again. But oddly enough, it, the desire had gone because I suppose that, that part of the brain had gone. People that do 12 steps and all that stuff, God bless them, because I don't know how they would. I don't know if I would have ended my drinking if my brain hadn't exploded. One of the things that comes up in the years after the explosion and in the rec recovery process, and once you start to have the epileptic seizures, you know, one of the first things that people are turning to you and saying is, were you drinking? Cause mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're like, no, no, I haven't had a drop since... since well, I mean, that was probably one of the most difficult consequences to face was the epilepsy. Nobody said that that was going to happen after my hemorrhage or after my recovery. So two years after it, I was walking down the street with a friend in New York and I suffered a massive tonic-clonic or grand mal seizure where I fell down, I... Uh, my hands became claw-like, and I started shaking, and I had a prototypical what you would see as an epilepsy attack. Yes, I did go to doctors after, and they thought it was maybe I was inebriated of some sort, but it, it, unfortunately it turned out to be epilepsy, and that will be a lifelong condition. I, I want to circle back to something that you said there where that no one had told, no one had told you and no one had warned you that this was a, a consequence of, of the hemorrhage. And it, that really sort of underscores almost the coldness of the surgeon who ended up saving your brain. Like when, you, you know, you go back and you're trying to learn what had, what exactly had happened to you and what exactly had been done to save you. And he was like, you don't need to know that. You're not even going to understand it. Yeah, I would even <laughs> take it a step further and yeah. call it cruelty. I mm -hmm. wouldn't call it coldness. One thing I do hope in my book is to voice what's going on with patients. And I can honestly say that a patient's recovery is only equal to a, hum a doctor's humanity. Throughout my recovery, I've met horrible uh, doctors, but I've met beautiful ones who've helped me as well. But yes, the surgeon who did operate on me was extremely cruel, callous, and cold. I did ask him what, what exactly happened to my brain. I know there's metal. Tell me about that. He dismissed me, and he said condescendingly, he said it's counterproductive. You wouldn't understand. You didn't go to medical school. It was quite damaging, and I realize this happens to a lot of patients. We do need humane medical care and humane doctors, and we don't seem to be getting that a lot of the time. Right, and you you do say, as you mentioned just now, that you've gotten some great medical help since then, but it still seems like it's kind of a crapshoot in terms of, certainly in terms of getting a firm grip on the epilepsy, as you describe it. It was more than a crapshoot. It was really kind of harrowing. Well, epilepsy as a condition is extremely hard to manage because it is a lot of trial and error moments. You basically are given medicine. If you get an epileptic attack, it doesn't work. If not, it works. Um, there are cocktails of drugs. You could take one milligram of this, 10 milligrams of this. It's a very, very difficult condition. So with that, the doctors are wonderful. My epileptologist are, you know, is a wonderful man. It's the disease itself that's very, very difficult to control. At what point did you decide that this was an experience that you wanted to write about? Because looking at your your sort of your, your biography and, and the way that you describe your life in the book, I mean, there's a strong visual art component to your creative life. This seems like sort of the first really big sort of writing project or, or, or choosing to express yourself in writing. Well, I always, I always wrote academically. 
this was the first time I decided to do a memoir of this sort. And you asked why, and the simple reason was I had gone to support groups after a long time, and I saw the devastation that brain injury causes. I saw people that are quadriplegic, paralytic, could not speak. If they did, they were completely mentally challenged. They weren't able to get words out. And I realized I'm rather blessed and lucky to be able to articulate what happened to me. So I realized I was going to write about it and tell it about a circumstance that many, many people who've gone through it cannot tell about it. So I'm able to. You talk about some of the, the group sessions that you've been in and you know, so that impression that sometimes occurs where you know, you're in that setting with people who are in a lot of different states of health following their brain injuries. And in some cases, there's almost sort of a sense of disbelief when they, they see you. And it's like, you know, what are you doing here? You right. fine. You know, we are a very visual society. So unless I'm physically, I physically show my ailment, it's very difficult. Other brain injured people will get a bit irritated and upset. People that do not have brain injury will see me and not realize how damaged I am within. It's been a, it's, brain injury is called the invisible illness a lot of the time because so many people, a lot of people have it, you wouldn't know because they look perfectly fine. I'm very, very blessed to look the way I did before, but it's also very difficult to contend with people uh, interpersonally because I look the same. I like to compare myself to a beautifully gift wrapped package under the Christmas tree and you open it up and it's a busted toy inside. But on the outside, it looks fine. So it's been, it's hard with the quote norms. Um, it's hard for me to be seen as who I am and as well as with people that are brain injured. It's hard because I, I look normal. So on both ends. You write about how out in the world in the decade, actually, you know, gosh, 13 years now. 13 years, March 17th. 13 years, March 17th. That, that was the day my brain exploded. Okay. Correct. That you've met. You write about one encounter that you've had with another person who had AVM. Is that the one encounter that you've had in that 13 years, or have you met other people with your condition since? You know what? Oddly, I, have, I haven't I have met them in person in the support group, but I've met them through the Internet. I've met them through Facebook. Um, there are AVM societies, which I didn't even know existed. I've met people who have my, my vision condition. So I have to give it up to the internet and social networking. It's helped me a lot to meet other people in my same condition. But it is, yeah, I have good question because I haven't met that many people who have AVM. Except as you remember in the book, I do remember meeting a woman whose young child had an AVM and she was sobbing and I told her he would be fine as I am. So Another aspect of this memoir that really stands out in the telling of your story is sort of the raw family nerve that it exposes. And as we can imagine, this was not an easy thing for you and your parents and your brother to, to deal with. And there was a lot of anger and frustration, particularly, I think, in the initial stages about the way that your dad reacted to things. He took it rather oddly. I Let me begin by saying I adore him and I love him. But he took it oddly. The, the moment my brain exploded... Which kind of made sense, but however, I hadn't signed my COBRA plan for my last job, so he was so worried about my insurance, and that was pretty much his main focus as I lay dying. And another thing he did was, when I was hospitalized, he went ahead and broke the lease of my apartment, because I don't think he, he knew what was going to happen to me. So when I came out of the hospital, I had no home. 
and I, I had no, it was very difficult. So it was really hard to forgive my father, but I realized everyone does what they do at the, you know, whatever they can do, and that's what he could do at that moment. How did your parents feel about the memoir now? Have they had a chance to see it? Or? They did. I gave it to them for Christmas. Oddly enough, for a South Indian Brahmin family, which... Uh, our group is pretty much into privacy and dignity, like the queen mom kind of thing. They were really um, cool with it. They were very positive and they loved it. And they thought it was, you know, it was a really great memoir. So I'm very proud of my parents. You mentioned this a little bit at the in the sort of the tail end of the book, but I want to talk about it in a little detail here in terms of, you know, you tried going back to the PR career when you were recovered and it, just did not seem to pan out at all. What are you doing now these days? Well, now I'm just, I'm writing. I do a lot of different jobs in order to, you know, make ends meet. I teach English uh, at the International Center. I've helped out in the Red Cross. I, I volunteer in other organizations. But it has been very difficult. I've been wanting to get a full-time 9 to 5. However, as uh, my book tells, one time I had a seizure in a job interview, and it was devastating. I think no human being should ever have that experience, but I had a seizure in a job interview. And a lot of the times, I'm frustrated as to what to tell future employers. Do I tell them I had brain injury? Legally, of course, they can't reject me, but of course they can come up with some excuse. Do I tell them that? Do I tell them I've been on vacation? Basically, I have a huge gap on my resume now, and I have to explain it. Having written one book, do you feel like you want to do more? Oh, yeah, I'm really excited. I'm working, actually, on my second book. It's called To Nose Rings and Nectar, and it's a very frothy, funny, lighthearted comedic book, actually, of the women in my life in India, my aunts and grandmothers who've had a very strange, strange lives. So, yeah, I'm excited. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm going to be an author. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it does strike me that, you know, this memoir does focus on your condition and your recovery. And there are other things that come up sort of tangentially. Well, you know, we talked about your queer identity. We touched a little bit about your, your South Asian identity. These are things that come up in the memoir, but they're not really... The well, first. actually, the my racial issues and ethnic issues come up more in my childhood and in my teen years. Since I've been in New York City, no, not really, because we have a more of a smorgasbord of different races and ethnicities. When I, I am from a little cornfield in the Midwest where I've had to deal extensively with hardcore racism and bigotry and hate issues and bullying, which, of course, is all in the book. I'm very proud of that because there are not enough race books that deal with the Indian American experience. Most of it are blacks and Latinos dealing with racism. But luckily, my, you know, my book handles that. It handles a very unique situation or a situation that few have really brought out in literature. So, in, But in terms of my life post-hemorrhage, Racially, it hasn't really been an issue. It's been more of an issue of getting back into living with, with my deficits. We talked about how you're dealing with the half-blindness. There's another vision condition that comes up about three-quarters of the way through the book. Mm -hmm. You start having dis a distorted field of vision. How is that going these days? That was an extremely weird condition and that was hard to diagnose. Years after my epilepsy, I started seeing the world in a distorted way. I saw things big and small and little and fat, and it frightened me. I'd been through a lot of doctors where I was diagnosed um, with schizophrenia. One said I was psychotic. 
until they realized psychotics believe in their hallucinations. I knew they were hallucinations, so that meant I couldn't be. After a while, the brain is interesting. If you literally don't think about it or don't even acknowledge that it exists, it will get smaller. It'll take a long, long time, but it'll get smaller. So the brain is a lot more powerful than we give it credit. It can affect physical change. So regarding this weird vision issue, that's sort of what happened. It's lessened. It seems like the effects are primarily visual and in terms of memory. It doesn't sound necessarily, and, and maybe I'm, I'm wrong here, but it doesn't sound like it affects the writing side of your life so much, or, or, or does it? Well, visually, because I can't see half the world, looking at a monitor was kind of hard to write the book because I couldn't see the left margin. It's the same of how I learned to read again. I basically had to use a ruler and go line by line to figure out when the next line starts. So what might take someone, I don't know, a shorter amount of time, it took me a little longer to write my book because of my, my vision and my sight just to see simple things like margins and words and errors and all of that kind of stuff. So it was it's taken a bit longer. Because my book documents something horrible that happened to me, something difficult, that itself was hard to write about because I had to access a lot of pain that I had. I had to revisit a lot of pain that I was going through. Some of it, you know, the hospital sequences, I'm thinking in particular, are really painful. Mm -hmm. But going through that pain with the aspect of not having that emotional reaction to it. I mean, that must have been a challenging experience as a writer. Oh, you're, you're meaning now as I wrote the book as without the emotional it, yeah. reaction. Yeah, that was really, really challenging, absolutely. They, there is a term, I guess, supposedly called survivalist memoirs, and I suppose this would be branded in that. Yeah, to emotionally access it was extremely challenging, and to know that it was painful and it was difficult was hard, but also to realize it was triumphant, really, at the end of my recovery, and that I'm alive, speaking to you, mm -hmm. and trying to make it through. So it's at the end, I feel it's very uplifting, and it it can show that no matter how horrible it is, we can get through it. And it does show that, as you've read my book, there's a lot of comedy to it. I realized you can face sorrow or challenges with either laughter or crying, and I realized my laughter is stronger than my tears. Well, we certainly will be keeping an eye out for your next memoir about your family. To nose rings and nectar, right. correct. So you have been listening to Ashok Rajamani talk about The Day My Brain Exploded. This is Life Stories, and I hope you'll join us for another episode soon. Thank you.